let me give you an example from, I'll actually give you an example from the US Navy. So this is really interesting, which is that in the US Navy and increasingly across a lot of different branches of the military, they're now trying to hire people that can do many things quite well rather than one thing very well. And the reason that they're doing that is because the operating environment is so fluid these days that having someone who's a specialist in one area only tend to get you stuck. It means that you can be incredibly efficient at doing something, but then it means that you also can get really stuck when the world changes around you. So US military and in the US Navy specifically, they have a new class of ship. The example of that ship, I think it's called, I don't know what the class of ship is, but one of them is called the USS Gabriel Giffords. And what they have there is they have a concept known as minimal manning, which basically overturns something like 150, 200 years of, say, of Navy tradition. So instead of having, you know, the cook, the captain, the boatswain, the first mate, everyone's got a very specific job and a task. What they now have is they have people who are trained across three or four different areas. And so people can switch between being the lookout to navigating, to cooking, to, you know, pulling the ropes. And because everyone is, because you have multiple people who are interchangeable across different tasks, it means that that ship can operate with far fewer people. And it means that the ship is much more adaptable. So the ship itself can change from a surface combatant to a minesweeper to a submarine hunter. So for me, that's a really interesting metaphor for organizational change, which is that that ship is not as efficient in each of those tasks as bigger ships as the older ships, which are the same size. So it's not as good a minesweeper as the dedicated minesweeper. And it's not as good a surface combatant as the dedicated surface combatant. But what it has is it has that adaptability. And so what the US Navy's done is they've prioritized adaptability over efficiency. Welcome to the Data Binge Podcast, a library of discussions with technologists and business leaders focusing on the human relationship with technology. Three, two, one, deploy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. It is the month of April 2021. At the time of this episode's release, April is one of my favorite months of the year, as many of you I'm sure are beginning to take some much needed time away with your young families to celebrate spring break, or you may be seeing some letting up of many of the pandemic-related restrictions as authorities begin to ease back on restaurants and entertainment businesses in your local area. I have for sure been really enjoying my newfound access to the gym, so it's been my one of my personal enjoyments this month. At Microsoft, where I'm employed, it's also volunteer month where many of us can really lean in on contribution-related impact, whether it be becoming a career mentor and closing a network gap in our community or reaching out to someone we may know or not know as well as you'd like to simply give them some support and let them know you are there for them. Think about the last time that you've kind of reached out to someone just to give them the support that you may think they need. A colleague of mine and, and I just this month began volunteering for Big Brothers Big Sisters of America, lending our business expertise and our time to help empower the mission of the organization. It's just so incredible how much impact we can all have individually in the lives of others from simple efforts, a text message, a call, some volunteering efforts. But imagine the aggregate change 
we can all make in our world if we were to just begin to take small intentional actions of love and kindness toward others. And now for today's discussion. Today's discussion is a LinkedIn Live recording of the Data Binge podcast featuring Dr. Angus Hervey, political economist and co-founder of Future Crunch. Future Crunch based out of Australia, and yes, Gus is calling in from Australia, is a think tank focused on fostering intelligent and optimistic thinking, inspiring enthusiasm and excitement for technology, and empowering people to contribute to an inclusive future, all of which we discuss today. I came across Gus in a global MBA learning event where he led a presentation focused on the adaptability quotient or one's ability to overcome challenges by quickly determining what's relevant in the current era of knowledge. The interest of Gus's work doesn't stop there. Future Crunch is truly trying to get people excited about technology again as it exists within every layer of our lives and as it tends to get mostly negative attention. Think about the last time you heard something memorable about technology, it was most likely negative. There is another story to tell. Future Crunch disperses a phenomenal newsletter based on optimistic events happening in and around our planet in an attempt to change the stories of the 21st century by changing the stories we tell ourselves. A link to how to subscribe to the newsletter will be provided in the show notes of this episode. In this discussion, Gus brings together his interests across economics, politics, and science to weave together a new perspective on humankind's future, how to prepare for it, how to understand it, and how we can all look to empathize, entertain, and contribute to a novel and wonderful narrative for our species. I can't wait to share this episode with you. It is such a breath of fresh air on where we are at today as humans and where we can optimistically hope to be in our near to far future this conversation is going to be an amazing energy generator of optimism. Just a quick call out before we begin for Gus. He and his wife should by this time have welcomed a new being into their family. So congratulations to both of them. Let's send his family our optimism and energy as they begin a new journey of their own. Thank you for listening. And now I bring you Dr. Angus Hervey. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this live production episode of the Data Binge podcast. Thank you for watching. If this is your first time tuning in, I'm your host, Derek Russell. And the Data Binge podcast is a library of discussions focused on the human experience, the human relationship with technology. And we have such a fantastic guest slated up for you today. Introducing Dr. Angus Hervey, political economist and co-founder of Future Crunch, Gus, what is giving you energy today? <laughs> uh, that introduction, it's great to be on this show or this podcast. I'm not sure what we're calling it. I'm really looking forward to our conversation. Thank you very much for having me, Derek. What's giving me energy today? My giant flask of coffee. And we were kind of conversating before we got on. You were talking about the beauty in design. Talk about the design of that coffee. Why are you drinking out of that coffee container? <laughs> All right. Might as well start there. <laughs> this is called a... Um, and by the way, I'm not a paid representative. This is called a Chemex <laughs> coffee maker. 
and I love it because it's an iconic piece of design. It's a uh, it's an object that reached its perfect evolutionary form, and once we got to this, you can't improve on it. It was invented in the 1950s, and it makes brilliant and fantastic tasting coffee. And I think for me, it actually it's a pretty good start because I think it represents with innovation. Sometimes you you don't have to innovate anymore. Sometimes it's okay to say that thing is done, and that is we've we've done we've achieved our mission on that. And I think that's a hard thing for folks to just realize is the the idea that this thing, you can kind of fix it. There's no more writing. There's no more editing. You could just ship it and be happy that it's shipped and it's done. Yeah, absolutely. And of course, if you, you know, if you're working in IT, if you're working in digital, you can always keep on improving. You know, there's always another line of code that you can write. There's always another optimization that you can put in there. But I think when it comes to designing the built environment or when it comes to, you know, developing new energy systems or when it comes to just figuring out a way that people work together. Sometimes it is possible to say, okay, we actually nailed that. That's fixed and we can move on. See, we talked a little bit about kind of cool designs and kind of getting into the conversation. You mentioned the Concorde and some, we talked about the Blackbird and some other designs that we really enjoy. But you are dialing in from Australia. I'm not noticing, maybe because of the, the due to the speed of light, I'm not noticing any latency in our conversation. But you're all the way across the world, and just to maybe to communicate my ignorance on Australia, maybe just allow me to hold some space for what I think of Australia. You definitely have a marsupial as a pet, and she's somewhere she's somewhere in the house. Uh, you're a stone. <laughs> you, you could skip a rock over the Great Barrier Reef. And all of your friends and associates were extras in the HBO series Spartacus. <laughs> Are any of those things correct? Look, everything, everything <laughs> you've said is 100% true. I can't fault your logic in any way, shape, or form. Um, it feels like, I feel like I have nothing to teach you, Derek. Nothing to talk about. <laughs> well, so speaking of teaching and speaking of conversation, this is a live conversation, so folks that are listening in can dial in, ask questions real time. Gus, can you talk about Future Crunch, this foundation, this entity, this media company, this think tank? Can you talk about Future Crunch and what it's all about? So Future Crunch is a think tank. We are based across Australia and we help people understand what's happening on the cutting edge of science and technology. And we seek out and tell stories of progress. So it's about giving people the knowledge and the power they need to not just to stay ahead and maintain an advantage in the 21st century workplace, but also to give people hope for the future and to say, hey, look, there is, we can, we have the ability to make this a really amazing Anthropocene. And that power is within our hands. So Future Country is really about telling stories of change and telling stories about how human beings are making progress for both other people and for the planet. Uh, because we figured it was time to start changing the story around that because the story of how we're destroying everything and how everything is awful is a story that gets told a lot. We're very good at telling that story, but we're not very good at telling the story of how maybe we're turning things around and how the future could be better than the present. And one of the things that I've come to know, and we can talk about how I was introduced to Future Punch and, and you in a little bit, but there's a newsletter that the company has and we get these kind of blasts and the blasts are very focused on optimistic news, which is very different. It's a very different dose of news that I think all of us are prepared for. But just kind of in the crux of this month being Women's History Month, I don't know if it's a global sensation or just in the United States, 
but there was a story that I really loved that was shared. Can you talk about the fondue Guadalupe Muslim just for a bit and what that means to you? All right. So just to give you a bit of context here. So we have this newsletter, as we say, and, and we send that out every week or two. So uh, we have paid subscribers and then we have a, a free list as well. And the paid subscribers help us fund small charities that we find around the world. So the newsletter is about telling good news stories of progress from around the world. And it's also about getting excited about cool new technology. So we always cover what we think are the most amazing technological developments happening anywhere in the world in that week. And the heading that we have for that section is called Indistinguishable from Magic, which comes from, of course, the Arthur C. Clarke quote, which is that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. So we, we are technology enthusiasts. And we think that when technology works really brilliantly or when we have an incredible breakthrough, it feels like magic. And so the news editor tries to convey that sense of wonder and also a sense of optimism about different progress that's been made around the world for human rights, women's rights, clean energy breakthroughs, et cetera. So in the newsletter, it's not enough for us to just talk about progress. We also want to be the kind of people that make progress happen. And so what we do is we take some of the newsletter subscription fees and every month or so, we will fund a small charity organization that's using science and technology to make a real difference in the world. And so Fondo de Guadalupe is this fantastic charity. It's based in Oaxaca, Mexico. And every year they fund 25 young women to go to high school. They have a preference for women who come from rural areas and from indigenous backgrounds in Mexico. And unfortunately, they've been really badly impacted by the pandemic. Schools in Mexico have been closed since April 2020, and it doesn't look like they're going to open again until 2022. So the current crop of girls who are part of the scholarship program can't go to high school because they don't have regular internet access and they don't have devices. They have to borrow their parents' mobile phones. So we sent some money to the charity and they're going to buy all of the girls tablets that they can use to be able to attend high school, to be able to attend the lectures, to be able to connect with some of the people on the other people on the scholarship fund. And then every year, those tablets will be passed down to the next intake. So it's small, you know, it's not big charity stuff. But what we try to do with those charity selections is try to really target small charities and organizations that are actually having a genuine impact and that are using technology in a smart way. And if you go to our website, you can just search Future Crunch and check out the charity page. You'll see a, a ton of other charities that we've supported everywhere from Kenya to Uganda to Colombia. We've uh, supported charities in Nepal, all across the world, because technology can make such a difference in people's lives if it's applied intelligently. Well, your passion for the topic definitely comes out just in its description. And when I saw that newsletter, I really thought that that was powerful. And charity being the investment horizon of any particular charity, I think is not as impressive as the nuance of the charity and how it was chosen and the stories that come out of that and how you can start creating impact on, you know, in discussions like the one we're having today. Yeah. Well, the great thing was that we didn't choose that charity. One of our subscribers wrote to us and said, Hey, oh, that's cool. I know this great charity. And because she knew the Future Crunch news editor, she knew our modus operandi so well, she was able to say, Yep, that's going to be a perfect opportunity for Future Crunch support. So, really, it's actually a community thing. I'd love to take credit for it. But the reason that we can support these charities is because we have around 2,000 subscribers that actually think that the content that we produce is worth paying for. And then we're able to take some of that money and put our money where our mouth is and actually give a damn rather than just talking the talk. Yeah. And giving a damn is important. I like that slogan. So 
When you think about, you know, we're talking about stories, we're talking about narrative. Stories are extremely important for you. Like, what's the importance of telling stories? Like, why is that so critical right now? Look, nothing I say here is going to be news to your subscribers. Yeah, to people who are listening to this podcast, which is that human beings are a storytelling species, and so stories are the way that we make meaning of things, and it's the way that we often internalize the messages that are coming into us. So there's a great kind of, I think it's actually, it's a distinction. It may have come from Aristotle. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's ethos, pathos, and logos. And each of those is a sort of a mode of knowledge intake. Ethos and pathos tend to get lost for the logos, especially when we're talking about technology and the tech industry. We tend to think that if we can just blitz people with numbers, if we can just provide them with the right evidence, that that's going to motivate them to change their behavior, or that it's going to motivate them to invest in our startup, or that it's going to convince people that they need to change the culture of diversity within their organization. But what we actually know is that because human beings, our cultural evolution has placed such primacy on stories as a way of making meaning, as a way of communicating lessons and ideas, that we don't actually change unless there's a story that accompanies that logos. So for us, Future Crunch is about taking really fantastic evidence and data, cutting edge research and the greatest new science, and also you know, looking at data about how the world is changing, and then packaging that into stories so that people can actually make sense of it and so that they can access it. So storytelling is an essential business skill, and it's also an essential tool for wider change. Without it, you cannot start moving the dial. That isn't to say that you can just ditch the evidence and the facts. Obviously, that's super important. The way we like to think about it, though, is that you get make sure your, your facts are gold-plated and your evidence is bulletproof, and then you can start building amazing stories on top of that. And I think this is such a fun conversation because essentially this discussion is a, a live story that we're con- both contributing to. And I think a lot of folks are trying to get better at doing this. One of the, the items that came across in the newsletter as I kind of was reading it, is the U.S. city of Denver is reporting early success with a program where they have been able to offset 911 responders, like first-person critical responders, by having mental health practitioners on the receiving end of the 911 call. Mm. It's just such a simple fact that comes in, but it's an optimistic fact. It's something that's interesting for a number of reasons. And it just starts to change your perspective on a reframe on some problems that have been very legacy that a lot of folks are focused on, but it completely refreshes it in the frame of a story of a quick and easy story. Yeah. Well, what you're talking about here is is something that's actually, it's, it's a burgeoning movement worldwide. It's called solutions journalism. And the idea is to say, look, we've got so many problems in our laps, but we spend so much time talking about those problems. And we spend so little time focusing on the actual solutions to those problems. And so what I love about that story, and it's one of many, by the way, I mean, we include seven or eight good news stories in every single newsletter. So every week, we are always able to find at least eight or nine really big, good news stories from around the world that just didn't make it to the front page of the New York Times or onto Fox or onto CNN. So 
solutions journalism says we've got a whole bunch of problems. Who's trying to solve those problems? And can we use that as an example to maybe inspire other people to show how it can be done? What I loved about that Denver story was that so much of the conversation in the past 12 months in the United States has been around Black Lives Matter, police brutality, prejudice, talking about, you know, sort of violence and, and protest and this kind of what looks like a slow motion collapse of kind of civic glue that holds the country together. But that story gets told because it gets attention and because it drives eyeballs, um, because it generates, you know, it gets lots of viewers and in an attention economy, that's now paramount. The story of how that problem has been solved doesn't get broadcast at all. And if you start looking at the, for those solutions, you'd be amazed at how many you find. And really, that's what Future Country is all about, is to say, we believe that there are solutions out there. And if we use that as our lens to look at the world, it's extraordinary how many solutions you find. And so every week we find solutions on women's rights improving, on poverty decreasing, on big diseases um, being, you know, our fights against some of the big diseases being overcome. We find stories on clean energy, on decarbonization. They're all out there. But just because you're not seeing them doesn't mean they're not happening. The reason you're not seeing them is because of a commercial media model that's primed to drive fear and kind of conflict over solutions and harmony. Well, in the way that our brains are just naturally, I think one of your partners said this is our brains are naturally energized around these types of negative pieces of news. So we're already navigationally gravitating towards these different artifacts. Yeah, that's right. So I run Future Crunch with my business partner, Tane Hunter, who's a cancer scientist. So he has a background in data science and bioinformatics, which is really the the kind of bringing big data and and biology together. And then more recently, we've taken on board a director, Rebecca Tapp. And so the three of us essentially manage and run Future Crunch. And really our mission is to, as you said, try to reframe the story around what's happening in the world. Now, just wanted to point out, we're not kind of naive. So it's not about saying, you know, holding hands and singing Kumbaya and dancing around the fire and saying everything's (laughs) going to be great. That's not realistic. And it also doesn't acknowledge the just magnitude of the challenges we face, you know, everything from climate change to sort of the change in kind of the geopolitical sort of atmosphere. Far too many people still live in poverty. Hundreds of millions of people can't access the basic rights that you and I take for granted and that many of our viewers take for granted. And far too many children still die unnecessarily of preventable disease. But we have to be able to also hold two ideas in our head at once. And this is something that Hans Rosling used to say, he was one of our heroes, is that the world's getting better and the world isn't good enough yet. And so we need to be able to tell both of those stories about how the world is getting better and how the world isn't good enough yet. And the story, the only story we ever tell is the story about how the world isn't good enough yet. No, thank you for that. That's a wonderful way to look at things. It it reminds me of one of my favorite speakers, Jim Rohn. He talks about striving for success. It's a different frame, but he talks about one, wanting to be happy in their own life. And he talks about meditation and all these different things and living in the present moment. It's very hard to be happy in your own space as it is while being ambitious at the same time. It just reminds me a lot about why it's very difficult. The world's getting better, but there's more to do. Just to, to cross over, Matt Hughes, he's watching live. He says, hey, Gus, uh, he's a director of specialist sales at Microsoft. So he came over from Adobe. He's very enthusiastic about high tech. I think he's in the Valley. He's saying, you know, what stories do you think we'll be telling in the near future about 5G technology? 
and how it impacts the high-tech industry space. Anything that you're passionate about, about 5G, what comes to mind? Sure. And thanks. It's a great question. So with Future Crunch, we're enthusiastic about two things. We're enthusiastic about progress and telling the stories of progress, but we also are just technology enthusiasts, like unashamed. It's not cool to be a technology enthusiast at the moment. We're currently in a big kind of, we're reaching the sort of back end of a huge backlash against tech. This is a very normal swinging of the pendulum where technology, everyone was very excited about technology. And when they say technology, they're talking about digital technology. Everyone was very excited about that for about a decade. And now we're seeing the pendulum swing back this way, which is a very normal part of the way that technology evolves. And we're now starting to talk about regulation. All the tech giants are evil and terrible and have destroyed the world. And technology is going to ruin humans and everyone will be in a horrible black mirror future. That is part of a cultural conversation. Underneath, I'm far more interested in terms of what actually happens with technological progress. And 5G is a really great example of communications technologies, which have just been, have grown exponentially all the way back to Marconi's in the 1890s. So there's actually something, there's a a law called Cooper's Law, which states that the amount of information that we can transmit over a certain given area of bandwidth doubles roughly once every two years. So it's similar to Moore's Law but it's regarding data and communication. And Cooper's law has held true since Marconi issued the first ever radio signal back in the 1890s. So our ability to transmit data over a given area of bandwidth has increased by a factor of something like over a million since that time. 5G is the natural progression of that exponential growth in our ability to transmit data. And what we've seen is that every single time we've had a step change in that ability, it's completely transformed, first of all, the field of communications, but then that in turn transforms a whole range of other different industries. And so communications technologies are one of the three main pillars of any industrial revolution. So if you're ever going to have a big industrial revolution, you always need three main types of technology. You need communication technology, you need energy technologies, and you need medical technologies. And communications technologies, we've seen those really boom in the last 20 to 30 years with connectivity, with increased access to broadband, with mobile connectivity. And that really forms the base for all of the digital innovations that we're now starting to see. So 5G The way to think about that is that it's building up the next layer of the big pyramid that we're going to build everything else out on top of. And so on top of 5G, you get simulation technologies. So we're able to now, let's say, we can now, you know, with that kind of speed of data transmission, we can now really start talking about smart cities. We can start talking about digital twins. We can start talking about simulating digital environments so that AR and VR can actually finally start working. We can start, you start using machine learning and cloud technologies, but we can use them for a far wider range of applications. So 5G is the base of that pyramid. And then we get to build a whole new range of digital technologies on top of that, which take their innovations from some of the digital, from some of the digital progress that we've seen in the last 10 years. So I'm really excited about 5G technology. It's the next base of the stack. And most importantly, I think it's going to be really revolutionary when it comes to the developing world. If you think that a machine, someone can operate an excavator in Germany, but that excavator can be working in the United States, well, what happens when a teleoperator can be operating in Rwanda and operating a machine excavator in Germany? I think something like 5G brings the world together and it levels the playing field far more than previous communication technologies. It's fascinating. 
and I, I love how you talked about how the freedom, the thoroughfare, the freeway of, of data movement as it opens up and widens, now you're able to entertain all these different types of use cases. I've never looked at it in that way. I've always looked at it from a device perspective. I gave a presentation to the C-suite of a, a semiconductor, pretty large semiconductor. And at the time, they didn't really have a data strategy. And I was positioning you know, why that's important. And one of the orthogonal kind of ideas that came out of the presentation was if you don't have a data strategy, but you are a 5G forward business, what is going to multiply 10X, 12X, 15X? It's devices. And what do devices do? They hold telemetry and they are able to crunch insights and you're able to reason against it with ML models, et cetera. But if there's no data foundation for all those devices, you're not going to be able to utilize them. Just a, a couple things that are coming to mind now that we're getting really geeky into the, into <laughs> the text, it's the tech space. So one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about is this idea of how to understand the future of technology. You talked about some principles, you were fired about some principles, and I think you you kind of gave some examples of a couple just a moment ago. Like, how should we be thinking about this future, Gus? All right. So I touched on it a little bit earlier. And it's a model which I call language fire medicine. And it's a really useful frame for thinking about where we get technology innovation from. I've spoken already about, so the language side of that model is what we call digital today, and which is now evolving into what I call, to what we at Future Crunch call cognitive technologies, where we're able to start creating, we're building algorithms and machines that at least simulate the appearance of cognition. So they can now start taking on cognitive tasks. And this is the AI revolution. I'm not going to go on about it. You've, we've all heard and read plenty about it. So that is an example. But what's really interesting about the AI revolution or the machine learning revolution is that it's the successor to a long, long range of communication technologies that stretches all the way back down into antiquity. So it was preceded by computers. It was preceded you know, by code the invention of code itself, ones and zeros. Before that, we're talking about radio, television. Then we go even further back to that. We're talking about cheap daily newspapers, so mass communication, the telegraph. Before the telegraph, you go back to the printing press. And then you can go all the way back down into deep antiquity where you talk about the invention of writing and then even right back to forgotten time, which is the evolution of language. And so all of these are communication technologies and there's a long succession of these that human beings tend to invent again and again and again. And so really the way I think about machine learning, and you can think about crypto in this way as well, and any technology really which is about manipulating and moving data around, which ultimately is the manipulation of information, is that they're, they're a communication technology. So there's a really rich seam of that kind of a family of technologies stretching a long way back in time. That has been the main focus of innovation for the last 20 or 30 years. So we've seen this incredible explosion of innovation in the digital space and communications technologies. That's why we're now starting to see machine learning and AI coming through. But what's really interesting is that that hasn't really translated into productivity growth. So in the language of economics, which is what I love, that's my training and background, we've really been puzzled as economists in the 1970s about the fact that productivity was kind of going through the roof, you know, in the post-war period, all the way up to the 1970s. And then in the 1970s, we get this huge drop-off in productivity. 
And then it sort of recovers in the 80s and 90s through to the current day, but we never really see it attain the same levels that we did in the past, which is weird because there's been so much innovation in the last 20 or 30 years. The world has changed. You know, it's unrecognizable. And yet we're not seeing that translate into productivity growth. The reason that we think that productivity growth hasn't come through is because we didn't get a corresponding energy revolution that happened along with the digital revolution. And the reason for that So let's talk a little bit about energy. So energy is the next kind of category of technological innovation. We got fantastic innovation in the 19th century with fossil fuels and coal. That brought us electricity, steam-powered trains. It opened up entire continents to commerce and to trade. It sort of was the first wave of globalization. And then in the 20th century, we essentially discovered oil, which could do everything that coal could do, but better. And then on top of that, oil allowed us to produce plastics. It allowed us to make energy cheap and easy to transport. And of course, it gave us the motor car, which was really the foundation of the 20th century economy. The automotive sector you know, was the basis of labor productivity. It's what ushered in, uh, it changed cities. It eventually transformed the face of the entire planet. Well, um, we should have probably got another energy revolution with the nuclear, but for various reasons, safety, and also just cultural fear of nuclear, power, which comes off the back of nuclear's, you know, terrible kind of applications when it comes to war, we never really took on nuclear innovation. So we were due for an energy revolution in the 1970s and 80s with nuclear, and we just didn't really get it. And so essentially, we've stagnated with our energy technologies in the last 20 or 30 years. We've had the gas and the fracking boom, but that's essentially just a continuation of the same thing that we saw with oil. Gas is maybe slightly cheaper than oil, but not really. And so the cost of energy hasn't really gone down in the same way that it did from the 19th to the earlier 20th century through to the 1970s. So I'm going on a little bit here, but basically we've seen this. We haven't really seen an energy revolution yet. We're now seeing the energy revolution happen. Uh, Clean energy has gotten to the point that it's cheaper than fossil fuel energy. And that hasn't started to translate through into productivity growth. But in the next 10 years, we're going to see clean energy become much cheaper than fossil fuel energy. So we're talking now about half or a third of the cost. And once you start to do that, then you start to see productivity changes across the entire economy. Because the thing about an energy revolution is you're not just revolutionizing your ones and zeros, you're revolutionizing your atoms and your molecules and your actual physical built environment. And so we might think that software has eaten the world. We can see a lot of objects around us or a lot of work life where software has impacted that and software is now a layer across many industries. But energy touches everything. If you look in the room around you, wherever you are right now, every single object in this room, if you can halve the cost of energy required to produce that object, you're suddenly talking about a whole new type of economy and productivity gains we can't even think of. So that's really exciting that we're now starting to see this clean energy revolution come through. In the next 30 years, We're going to have to decarbonize our entire economy. And not only does that make our economy more sustainable and means that we don't screw the world, it also means we get this incredible productivity boost because those technologies are going to be cheaper and easier to use. And that's really exciting to us at Future Crunch. You know, if you think the digital revolution has been big, wait till the energy revolution. It's going to make the digital revolution look like small fry. So that's the energy revolution. And then the final one is medical technology revolution. And that is, again, that has been brought on, that's been brought on by genetics, essentially, which is interesting because it's the kind of bringing of data science into the field of biology. And what's really interesting, again, here is that we sequenced the first human genome 
just at the beginning of the 21st century. And we've spent essentially the last 15 or 20 years really trying to get our heads around genetic sequencing, trying to understand the science of it. And we've also uncovered a whole range of new fields like epigenetics and microbiomics. So there's been a huge revolution in our understanding of medical of biology. But what we're now starting to see is we're now starting to see the application of that understanding into the actual manipulation of the code of life itself. So the Pfizer vaccine and the Moderna vaccines that most people in the United States are getting right now, those would not have been possible without genetic sequencing. What most people don't know is that an mRNA vaccine actually has to be grown from synthetic DNA that gets printed out literally on a machine. So we are now printing out our vaccines with synthetic DNA, which is crazy. That sounds like science fiction. And that then we then reverse engineer. So we know what DNA to print out to then grow the RNA that we then grow in vats and distribute around the world. So when you get that shot in your arm, that shot comes from RNA that was originally grown from synthetic DNA. And that synthetic DNA was programmed and sequenced based on our incredible knowledge of genetic sequencing. So what we're going to now see in the next 20 or 30 years is this extraordinary revolution in healthcare as we start to see the fruits of that scientific labor come to bear in the form of genetic sequencing, in the form of genetic manipulation, and of course, in the form of CRISPR, our ability to actually cut and paste the code of life. So really exciting. We're still standing on the cusp now of this huge boost in, in productivity innovation. And the way to think about it, if you're thinking about where innovation happens, is again, come back to that model, language, fire, medicine. This is just extremely, extremely interesting. So when you're thinking through this language, fire, medicine, the way that you pose it is a framework or a model for consideration. Now, do these things, if you're a futurist or, you know, let's kind of get back to the foundation of this. If you're someone who's running a business or you're thinking about innovation and you're trying to understand what that future could potentially look like, is it a mere kind of framing this out as language and fire, those types of things help each other grow? Is there a certain you know augmentation of them? Is there a certain focus point that creates exponential opportunities in another? It sounds like energy is at the crux of, the, of kind of where your excitement comes from. But how does one look at that model in terms of where they start to invest, where they start to put their energy, no pun intended, into? <laughs> it's a great question. And I'm really glad you asked that. I mean, it's very well coming up with interesting theoretical frameworks, but what's the application and how does this mm-hmm. actually help people in, in mm-hmm. business and innovation? Uh, the way I like to think about it is that those three areas, they're kind of like the primary colors of innovation. So if you have an innovation strategy, for example, in your firm, you're going to need all three colors if you want to paint with the full palette. The mix of those different kinds of technologies is obviously very interesting. So, you know, for example, if we are going to be, so 23andMe, which is ostensibly a genetic sequencing company, is also very much a data company. You know, it's big data. They're using cloud-based technologies. They're using data analytics. They are shipping product, they're shipping, you know, so they are faced with all the same challenges that many companies who are in, I suppose, what we call the language space face, but the product and the technology that they are utilizing sits in the medicine space. So there's no reason that you can't innovate across all three areas at the same time, or that you can't have an interplay between those different areas. The point we're trying to make with that model is to say, if you're thinking about innovation, or you're thinking about investment. So for example, you're a VC, or if you're just an ordinary investor and you're looking at holding a portfolio, 
are you holding things in all three areas? Because you need to make sure that you have a play in all three areas because they're going to be the really big forms of kind of innovation over the next 10 or 20 years. And then more importantly, as a company, have you taken into account all three of those areas in your innovation strategy? Now, it may be that, for example, let's say a Microsoft, which is your company, maybe Microsoft doesn't need a play in the energy and the medical spaces. But then again, maybe Microsoft as a data company can help build products that are going to help those companies that are going to be innovating in the language and in the fire and medicine spaces to actually build up their technologies. So it's a really important consideration for anyone's innovation strategy to say, do we have a play in all three areas? And are we building products and are we servicing customers in all three areas? And if not, do we have a reason why not? Have we sort of really thought that through? So it really just helps clarify thinking. It's a story. (laughs) It's not true. This is not a perfect truth, but it's a story and a framework that helps us make sense of just this explosion in kind of innovation and technological disruption. And I think when it comes to something like technological disruption, it can be so overwhelming. So like, where do I start? Is it VR? Is it AR? Is it blockchain? Is it crypto? Is it AI? Is it, uh, am I talking about big data? Are we talking about cloud? Are we talking about edge computing? You know, it's just so much coming at you. And the nice thing about the language fire medicine model is that it just kind of helps put everything into its different categories and says, all right, we're focusing on one thing at a time. Well, if you're a consultant like me, it's a PowerPoint slide and it's got all those wonderful things that you just said all together in one web and there's a start and there's a finish. <laughs> yeah. And it's all combined. And what's really interesting is, is once you've got that frame, you're going to see it everywhere. So next time you watch an interview or you hear someone talking about innovation, you'll see it's always one of those three. It's what everyone talks about. I just read a fantastic interview of Patrick Collison is one of the brothers from Stripe, you know, $96 billion valuation recently. I mean, you know, wow. super smart guy, really amazing company. And I think he was being interviewed by Noah Smith, who's one of my favorite economists, who said, you know, what are you excited about? And he literally listed off those three areas, you know, language, fire, medicine. So once you've got it as a frame, you're going to start seeing everything, anything, anyone who's interested in technological innovation, you'll see that frame everywhere you look. Well, in preparation for this discussion, I was kind of thinking back through what this reminded me of. And I came back to a book by Thomas Friedman, who's a New York Times bestseller. I think he also wrote The World is Flat. I wrote a book called Thank You for Being Late. Not sure if if you've taken a look, but he talks about kind of three phenomenon and it's really Moore's Law and how they kind of intersect and synergize. Moore's Law, globalization, and climate change and as a byline to climate change was biodiversity. So you really start thinking about how those things come together. In the book, he talked about you know power of compute, how compute and data storage and how Moore's law impacts that. And he talks about the ability for us to trade across global borders. He even gets into an example that Microsoft loves to talk about, which is the connected cow. So IoT-driven yeah. cows that are connected, and now you have this telemetry and you can determine when a female is in heat and all these different kind of health optics that you weren't able to kind of determine before. I think when you think about a data center, it's just kind of thinking oddly here. You think about a data center and you think about you are harnessing this language, this cognitive ability to crunch data. There's an incredible amount of energy that is being consumed. So now you're seeing folks start to think about sustainable data centers which is interesting, so that you can start solving these problems 
that might be sequencing, you know, different DNA and things of that nature. So it's a brilliant orchestra. Yeah, I think that's true. And then also, what is the most perplexing data problem in the world today? And the answer to that is the human body. The human body and biology is so much more complex than anything that we know about. If you just dive, if you even just dip your finger into what a cell does, you realize that it's an order of magnitude more complex than what ones and zeros do. And so when we start to apply the power of that compute to start to crunch biology questions, that really puts us into a whole new paradigm in terms of human evolution. We're kind of touching upon this. You were talking about rate of change. A little bit ago, you talked about this overwhelming opportunity and there's some fear wrapped into this thing around how do I keep track of innovation, 5G, AI, all these different big buzzwords that we're kind of talking through across the model that you provided. And what comes to mind is, I think, a lecture I saw you give about the adaptability quotient. And our earlier conversations talked about changes was happening very slowly until it happened very fast. So, you know, what are your thoughts around how we can adapt, how we can digest and approach some of these things with as fast and accelerated as they are? Great. It's a good question. Yeah, it's one of the things we talk to our clients a lot about is this idea of the adaptability quotient. So in the same way that you can have your IQ, and, and more recently, we talked a lot about EQ. AQ is now something that's really important for anyone really to have when you're talking not just about the workplace, but you're actually talking about your life and how you, how you handle things in your life. What's happened in the past, what we've learned in the t- past 12 months is that things are unpredictable. <laughs> I mean, if you'd taken the best analysts at Microsoft and two years ago, you'd said to them, what's going to change the world? No one predicted the virus. It just wasn't on anyone's horizon. What I think the virus has shown us amongst many things, it's given us many lessons. What it's shown us is that the world is an incredibly unpredictable place. And because of the nature of connectivity, technology, population growth, geopolitics, the world is becoming more and more unpredictable. So the likelihood of black swan events is becoming, we're moving into a world where that is now just more likely. And what that means is that we need to be prepared to be more adaptable. And so adaptability, your AQ is now something we can start thinking of as an ability or as something that we can train ourselves to improve as opposed to something that we just are or we aren't. I mean, adaptability obviously is an evolutionary gift. All humans are adaptable. In fact, it's probably our main evolutionary advantage over many other animals. The way I like to think about that is that, you know, my daughter Lola is, uh, she's 16 months old. And when I'm watching her grow up and learn, she would be just as comfortable if she was growing up in Imperial Japan or the Australian outback 80,000 years ago as she is in her current environment. So, her environment can change radically. She may eventually one, you know, maybe her descendants one day might grow up in zero G gravity, but the human brain is so incredibly adaptable that it can shift into those different environments with relative ease. So adaptability is kind of our evolutionary gift. It's now something though that we really need to concentrate a lot more on. And the probably the best tip I've ever been given for improving adaptability is something that is, well, again, this is pretty common in tech and people would have heard this, which is strong opinions lightly held, which is an attitude. It's a sort of an attitude in which you approach the world. Growth mindset. Yeah, it's a growth mindset. The way I like to put some numbers on it is I like to sort of say to myself, right, I'm always going to give myself a 10% chance that I could be wrong. So I'm going to walk through the world with 90% certainty on everything. 
I'm going to do my research. I'm going to form my view and get my opinion, but I'm always going to include that 10% chance that I could be wrong. And what that does is that if I get new information that contradicts my previously held belief, it's easier for me to let go of that belief to say, well, I only ever 90% believed it anyway. So I think I'm okay to let it go. And what that does is it allows me the possibility of being wrong. And it's really important to be wrong sometimes because no one is right all the time. (laughs) Someone who's right all the time is a nightmare to work with. It's also impossible. No human being is infallible. And the really dangerous thing is that someone who thinks like that, the problem with thinking that you're always right is that that being wrong feels exactly the same as being right. So if you're wrong about something, but you think you're right, it feels exactly the same as being right. So there's no distinction. And that can be really dangerous when you're talking about innovation or organizational adaptability. So what you're looking to do is you're looking to be the kind of person that admits to being wrong sometimes and also being trying to work with groups of people that can admit to being wrong sometimes as well. And the great thing about demonstrating this ability to be wrong is that it gives others permission to be wrong as well. And that can really supercharge innovation. So what does that look like? I'm just kind of thinking about, you know, our team that I'm working on right now focuses exclusively on innovation and we have a design thinking methodology and there's, it's very, very empathy driven. It's very collaborative where we're not going away in a box and thinking through some things. We're working hand in hand with some organization against some design challenge and invigorating that design challenge with insight based upon human collaboration. Typically, when you think of when an organization is thinking about you know, this 90% rule or, or approaching things with this idea, this attitude that you framed up, are there any examples that you've seen where that is central to the culture or whether it's not central to the culture or just thinking high level from a general management perspective? Like, what is that ethos? organizationally. Let me give you an example from, I'll actually give you an example from the US Navy. So this is really interesting, which is that in the US Navy and increasingly across a lot of different branches of the military, they're now trying to hire people that can do many things quite well, rather than one thing very well. And the reason that they're doing that is because the operating environment is so fluid these days that having someone who's a specialist in one area only tend to get you stuck. It means that you can be incredibly efficient at doing something, but then it means that you also can get really stuck when the world changes around you. So US military and in the US Navy specifically, they have a new class of ship. The example of that ship, I think it's called, I don't know what the class of ship is, but one of them is called the USS Gabriel Giffords. And what they have there is they have a concept known as minimal manning, which basically overturns something like 150, 200 years of say of Navy tradition. So instead of having, you know, the cook, the captain, the boatswain, the first mate, everyone's got a very specific job and a task. What they now have is they have people who are trained across three or four different areas. And so people can switch between being the lookout to navigating, to cooking, to, you know, pulling the ropes. And because everyone is, because you have multiple people who are interchangeable across different tasks, it means that that ship can operate with far fewer people. And it means that the ship is much more adaptable. So the ship itself can change from a surface combatant to a minesweeper to a submarine hunter. So for me, that's a really interesting metaphor for organizational change, which is that that ship is not as efficient in each of those tasks as bigger ships as the older ships, which are the same size. So it's not as good a minesweeper 
as the dedicated Minesweeper. And it's not as good a surface combatant as the dedicated surface combatant. But what it has is it has that adaptability. And so what the U.S. Navy's done is they've prioritized adaptability over efficiency. And that's a really interesting change if you think about what drives an organization. Because for the last 20 or 30 years, we've been driving with efficiency at the forefront, at the top of our value stack. We said we need more productivity, more efficiency. We need to get that product out the door quicker, faster to the customer. We need to have turnover. And you know, it's, so it's all about efficiency drive. What we're now starting to see in the business world is we're now starting to see, hey, maybe we can sacrifice a little bit of efficiency for more adaptability. And the other great example that I like of that is that we're now starting to see pharmaceutical manufacturing, for example, going to go from making war to making to the opposite, which is healing people. In pharmaceutical manufacturing, we're starting to see them create sort of shells of buildings now that can be purposed for multiple different uses to manufacture multiple different kinds of drugs. And there's a company called Lanza in Switzerland, which has been which pioneered this. They started about two years ago, and they built a series of factories like this in the Swiss Alps. And what that meant was that when Moderna came knocking and said, hi, we need a production facility because we have this brand new kind of vaccine called an mRNA vaccine, which we've never really built a production line before. We don't know how to build a production line and there's no previous examples of it. This company, Lonza, was able to say, well, we actually have a shell of a building that's purpose-built for modular pharmaceutical manufacturing. Why don't you come in here and, and have a go? And that meant that Moderna was able to spin up their production lines in a matter of months rather than years, which is what it would have taken if they'd relied on traditional pharmaceutical manufacturing. So to bring that all together, we're seeing this organizational shift now where adaptability, certainly cutting-edge organizations, they're choosing to sacrifice a little bit of efficiency for more adaptability because they're saying the world we're living in is changing too fast to get stuck. And I, I mean, I, we could have a discussion just solely based upon kind of some of the anecdotes that you gave some things, adaptability, some of the things that come to mind, Naval Ravikant, he's the founder of Angels List. And he talked, he's been on the Joe Rogan podcast and Ferris podcast, and he talks about specialization. Now humans, only insects specialize. Totally. Humans are, are supposed to have this kind of wide breadth of ability. And then you think about what robots are used for. And you've coined it as dirty, dangerous, and something else the term that kind of how robots are used and they're used for specialist type of roles where a human has to perform a number of different things across a number of different moments, across a number of different days. So it really makes you start thinking about how we're moving into this cognitive culture, even at the organizational level for optimal performance. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But where humans really shine, where humans are really, really, really great are when the rules get broken. That's when humans are awesome. When the rules stay the same, that's automate that. But if the rules get broken, that's where you want human beings in the mix. And so that's why, you know, any conversation around automation always involves some mix of humans and machine. And I think a lot of the hype, the fear, and the kind of just hyperventilating about that kind of automation conversation, it doesn't have any nuance in it. It's either the robots or the humans, and it's never mm -hmm. the robots and the humans. But the robots have always been with us. We've always automated stuff. And that's not new. It's never. And you know, that's where I come in when I talk about AI. Folks are never thinking about the AI or the robots empowering the humans. It's always a, an if or. Yeah. We're coming to the end of the call. That, I mean, that hour just eviscerated. <laughs> we just really got <laughs> into, the, into the topic and had a ton of fun. How can folks get a hold of you? 
Great. So the company's name is Future Crunch. Just Google Future Crunch. You'll find us pretty easily. One of the best ways of just following us is to subscribe to the newsletter. And there's a link there on the webpage. They can subscribe to the free newsletter. And if you subscribe to the free newsletter, you're just going to get good news. Every two weeks, you're just going to get a mega dose of good news in your inbox. Who doesn't want a whole bunch of good news in your inbox? But we don't charge for that one because good news is a terrible product and no one will buy it. So then if you want to sign up to the paid newsletter, you'll also see in the newsletter page there that there's an option to become a member. And we dedicate some of that money to charities, as we said. So yeah, you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and all the social media sites. We're not big fans of social media as users, but we think it's a great platform for broadcasting. So those are good places to follow us. But the newsletter is our main. That's the one we love. That's where we put the love and attention. And just the last question before we let you go is... I ask all my guests this question. If you had, and I know this is one that's going to come from the heart. If you had seven days of unlimited resources, what problem would you attempt to solve? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Seven days and it ends, cuts off, no more. The problem that I would solve, seven days and it ends, I would try to cure tuberculosis. It's a disease that affects something like one and a half million people every year. It's horrible. It's a real disease of poverty. We're making progress, but the progress isn't fast enough. And if we could save one and a half million people per year from tuberculosis, I think that would just change everything. So yeah, we're going to go small and cure tuberculosis. (laughs) (laughs) All right. All right. Well, we are at the top of the hour. Gus, this has been such an amazing conversation. We really appreciate you coming on the discussion. We will be able to post this in a couple of weeks once it's edited down. But for folks that tuned in live, thank you so much for watching. This has been a really fun discussion. Thanks so much for having me, Derek. I really thoroughly enjoyed this conversation and looking forward to hopefully more of the same in the future. All right. Well, thanks for watching, folks. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us on the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.